And today we are going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. So open up your Bibles or be on the screen here. Um, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. These preach out of, of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I live, now if I live on in the flesh, this means meaningful work for me. I do not know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways you speak to us through your word. And I pray that you do that um, afresh this morning, that you would speak in me and through me, and that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive from you just the, the life-giving word. And we, th we thank you for the ways that you will use um, today's um, worship, whether it's through the preaching or the singing or the prayer, for your glory and for our good. In your name we pray, amen. Well, um, if, you, if you listen to me talk about Bible or theology for more than five minutes, you've probably heard me reference something I first learned from Timothy Keller. Um, and you're probably, maybe some of you are getting a little, it's getting a little old for me continuing to reference him. I don't know. But I've, I've just learned so much from his teaching and his uh, ministry. Um, if you don't know, Keller, um, him and his wife planted Redeemer Church in New York City back in 1989. Uh, and he became a best-selling author. He is inf became an influential thinker and uh, an advocate for gospel movements throughout urban areas around the world. Uh, he's helped me in a, in a lot, of, lot of ways in, to understand a myriad of subjects, both cultural and scriptural. But most of all, he's helped me see that all the Bible points to Jesus. You know, I owe a lot to Tim's diligent and Christ-centered work. As many of you probably know, several weeks ago, Tim passed away from cancer. Uh, he worked hard for the gospel right up until the end. A few weeks ago, I, I watched an, a recent interview by him where he discussed how he wasn't afraid to die. And I, I was just struck by his humility and grace in the face of his impending death. Um, he discussed how God even used his cancer diagnosis for good. I think most of us, myself included, live as though we're never going to die. But, but Tim, in this interview, he said how he was actually thankful to know that his death could come at any time because it took away that... that um, denial of death that many of us carry with us. And it helped him in his sanctification, growing to be more like Jesus. It helped him in his focus to, to be encouraging the next ministry leaders. Now, I don't know about you, but Tim's perspective on death is just really convicting. Um, he wasn't upset about his cancer diagnosis. I mean, he was initially, but eventually he wasn't upset about it. He, he was actually grateful for it because it helped him to become more like Jesus, to trust in Jesus more, and it helped him to be more focused in his gospel work. 
Do you have that kind of perspective when it comes to difficult things in life? I know I, I often don't. But Timothy the Keller, he's just one recent example of so many ordinary followers of Jesus who live for one simple goal, to magnify Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he's another example. As we continue in our new sermon series on Philippians and the gospel-saturated life, today's passage gives us a glimpse into Paul's inner life. We learn how he dealt with trials, how he, he faced setbacks. We also see what motivated him above all else and what should in turn motivate us as followers of Jesus. Now, I can't sum up the big idea of this text better than Paul did himself. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The text is split up into two parts. Uh, the first, we see Paul's concern with advancing the gospel. And in the second, we see Paul's concern with magnifying Christ in, in everything. So let's dive into the text and see how Paul could say without one ounce of irony, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, um, I'm sure you've noticed that the book of Philippians is a lot different than our last sermon series on the book of Daniel, uh, which is because of a lot of reasons. First of all, it's a different genre of writing. Secondly, it's in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And George last week set us up well for our summer study through this book. Uh, but I just want to note one thing that is important to keep in mind when looking at these letters in the back half of our Bibles. And that's the fact that these letters are letters. We are getting a chance to peek into somebody else's mail as we open up the book of Philippians, which should guide us in how we um, interpret the text, but also how we apply it to our own lives. Philippians was a message that Paul and his right-hand man, Timothy, sent to uh, the community of faith living in the Roman colony of Philippi, a community of faith that Paul himself planted during one of his ministry journeys. You know, Paul wrote many letters to the early communities of faith gathered around Jesus. But um, Philippians is unique because it was one of the most supportive of all the churches that he started. We, we see that in, in our text today because Paul's main concern with sending this letter was to respond to the Philippians' initial message and the gifts and support that they sent through one of their own, Epaphroditus. Now, Paul, he's going to have a lot more to say about Epaphroditus later in the letter. Um, but to better understand today's passage, it's helpful to consider Paul's own situation and, and, and how that informs us as to why the Philippians may have seen the need to give Paul support for his ministry. So this letter, it's no thoughtless text message or email sent in a flurry, but it's a thoughtful message of encouragement that, that Paul and Timothy and others labored over before they sent it off to the Philippians. And their hope was to help a struggling church to apply the gospel in every area of life. It's a call to live a gospel-saturated life, to have the gospel imbued into every area, every, everything that we say, everything that we do. And in, it's also a call for us to do the same, to live a gospel-saturated life, to be concerned with what Paul was concerned with, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, though Paul had uh, his own sufferings and troubles going on, he begins his letter not with complaints, not with worries, but with the joy of advancing the gospel. Now, we see that in verse 12, where he writes, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So the Philippians, they are worried about Paul, so they send him this message and support through Epaphroditus. Now, the, the Philippians... Um, he begins Philippians with the opening, the introduction, and now he goes on to, in his message, to do what friends do in any, any letter. He, he gives his own situation and informs them about what's going on in his life. So what is Paul's situation? Now, we can't be certain from the text, because, um, but be, because Paul uses the word patorium, translated imperial guard in verse 13, it's likely that Paul is speaking about his imprisonment in Rome, because the imperial guard was the emperor's own elite troops. So it's likely that that's who he was referring to. So this, this would place the writing of the letter around 60 to 62 AD, which were the very beginning years of the early communities of faith gathered around Jesus. 
Now, you can actually read about how and why Paul was sent to prison in Rome in the book of Acts, um, starting in Acts chapter 21, leading to Acts chapter 28, which tells the sad story of how Paul was falsely accused by the Jews in Jerusalem for bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple, um, which was inappropriate and uh, illegal, actually, for foreigners to enter. Um, So the rest of the story details how because of, of the abuse and neglect of the Roman government overseeing this case of the Jews against Paul, he was shuffled from prison to prison until he eventually ended up in Rome where he was, uh, awaited his case to be resolved by the Roman Emperor Nero. Um, it's a sad tale where Paul, he faces beatings, he, he languishes for months in prison, he's shipwrecked, he gets bit by a poisonous snake. It's a pretty, pretty exciting story, actually. But it, it all ends up with him under house arrest in Rome. No wonder the Philippians were worried about Paul. At the writing of this letter, he'd been through a lot because of his faith in Jesus. But what is he concerned with? He's not concerned about himself. No, he's concerned with advancing the gospel. Paul wants to be sure that the Philippians know that despite his situation, the gospel is still advancing. Now, first off, Paul shows that his suffering actually brought about the advancing of the gospel by bringing clarity for unbelievers. We see this in verse 13 where Paul states that the whole imperial guard and everyone has come to know that his, his imprisonment is due to the fact that he is in Christ. Now, Paul's guards, they gave him access to visitors and to, to writing of letters, but they would have watched him around the clock, 24-7. And it seems Paul really jumped on this opportunity. He made sure that every Roman guard, every Roman official knew why he was in prison. He was in prison because he was in Christ. In Christ. That, it, that's kind of an awkward phrasing in the sentence But I believe Paul uses it on purpose. One commentator writes how the Greek word en translated in and its close relationship to the word imprisonment means that Paul was very likely not just saying something about why he was in prison, but also something about his understanding of the nature of discipleship, that it means to participate in Christ's sufferings. As he says later in chapter 3, verse 10, my goal is to know him, that is Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Wow, so, so Paul saw his imprisonment as a participation in the suffering that Christ faced on the cross. He was fulfilling Jesus' mandate when he said in, in Mark chapter 8, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What a hard saying. Jesus called his disciples to deny all the other things that, that one might build their life on. Family, work, beauty, national identity, politics, money, you name it. And what would they gain for this denial? An invitation into the same sort of suffering that Jesus faced living for his father in a lost and broken world. Paul is living out this difficult command. He, he's showing us what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, suffering has a certain way of bringing clarity, doesn't it? No matter what we might claim to believe, when we start to lose the things that we really care about, whether it's comfort, friends, financial security, whatever it may be, we start to get a glimpse of what has truly captivated our hearts. The, the Christian theologian and philosopher Pascal once wrote that there is a God-shaped hole in every human heart. We were made to know and share the love of the God of all creation. But when we turned away from him and, and chose to determine right and wrong on our own terms, this ultimate relationship was broken. People have been trying to fill that God-shaped hole ever since. The things we try to fill it with become the things that shape our identities, the things that we live for, the very things that we worship. You know, they become our idols. Augustine, another philosopher and theologian, summarized virtue as rightly ordered love. He writes in his book on Christian doctrine, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order. 
Augustine is here saying that when our loves are disordered, our lives become disordered. God has filled this world with so many good things to be enjoyed. But when we, lo- we love these created things more than the creator, it wreaks havoc in our lives. A love for beauty becomes lust. A love for security becomes fear. A love for food, gluttony, for rest, laziness. Timothy Keller, he says it like this. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever you, you, we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And idolatry is what happens when we love something more than God. Yet God doesn't just tell us to love him because he created us and he made us um, to share in his love. No, he, he calls us to love him in this way also because it's for our own good. As Augustine is famously quoted for praying, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The good things that we love so much, they will always fail us in the end. Every idol is a false god. And this is no more apparent when we suffer. Hardships and trials are made all the worse when we have put our trust in the transitory things of this life that will never last. The idols we worship promise to fulfill that that hole in our hearts. But when life really gets tough, they, they never fulfill in their promises. Only God is true to his promises. And when all else fails, God is faithful. This is why Paul can be so excited about the advancing of the gospel when everything is going wrong in his life. To advance the gospel has been his lifelong goal. Paul has ordered his loves rightly, putting God above all else. So when all else is taken from him, he can rejoice, which itself becomes a wonderful witness to the good news of the cross of Christ. When unbelievers saw Paul rejoicing in his suffering, they gained, they gained clarity not only as to why Paul was in prison, but also about this good God that he serves, the one who is worthy of leaving all else behind to follow. So how is your life bringing clarity for unbelievers? Do you face hardships and, and setbacks in a way that, that reveals to the watching world that you serve the good and faithful God? Or do do hardships bring clarity for yourself about where your loves may be a bit disordered? That's okay. It can be so tempting to to put our trust in these transitory things, to chase after the things of this life that that we hope that will bring us the peace and joy that we long for. Perhaps you're saying that maybe if I just get that promotion, things will be okay. Or when we're finally homeowners, everything will be be right in the world. If I could just get a spouse, if my kids were safe and healthy, if, if, if. Oftentimes, it's on the other side of that if is where the idol lies. That's the thing that is worshipped. You know, we, we can be thankful for suffering, and, and this is hard for me to say because I, I don't enjoy hardships, but we can be thankful for them because they bring clarity for us, where, where our loves may be disordered, and they bring clarity for unbelievers when they see us suffering with grace and peace. You know, when our words about the gospel are combined with, with a life that conforms to its truth and beauty, it's such a powerful message. Yet Paul recognizes that the gospel is advancing not just because of his suffering has brought clarity for unbelievers, But he also sees that his imprisonment has brought encouragement for brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul states this in verse 14. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. You know, Paul couldn't continue his ministry outside the walls of his prison other than his letters. Um, But he rejoiced that the church was inspired by his hardships to speak the good news about Jesus all the more boldly. Now, why were the Roman Christians nervous to share their faith? Well, it's likely because in the early 60s, it was becoming more and more clear that the Roman Emperor Nero was a little unhinged. And the church itself was becoming under suspicion from the empire as a whole, but 
but, but in particular from Nero, who his, his madness would be confirmed um, shortly after the writing of this letter when he had a programmatic massacre of the church in Rome. Um, and so the present situation for the believers in Rome was perhaps understandably more dormant in their evangelism than, than they used to be. So for good reason, then Paul, he is joyfully explains that the Philippian believers have, because of his imprisonment, been all the more courageous in, in, in proclaiming Christ at the very heart of the empire itself, where storm clouds were starting to brew. Now, many of you probably know about Michael and Holly, uh, members of our church who have recently gone through some really traumatic experiences. Um, if you don't know, several weeks ago, um, right before Holly was due, to, or not several weeks ago, but several weeks before she was due to give birth to their first child, her husband Michael almost died from complications with his heart. I won't go into all the details, but needless to say, this was a traumatic experience. For a few weeks, we weren't certain that Michael was, was going to make it. Thankfully, by God's grace, Michael is healthy and back on his feet. I think he's right there in the back. Yeah. But yeah, he's healthy, back on his feet. But I'm still struck by the faith they displayed through all the difficulties that they faced. Just three days after the initial rush to the hospital, uh, Holly sent a text that still sticks with me today. It's a, it was a long, beautiful message about God's mercy and goodness in the midst of all their troubles. And it's seen her gratitude when it could have been so easy to dwell on, on the disappointments and the fears was so encouraging to me. It made me wonder why I don't face difficulties with, with, so, with as much grace and gratitude. And it encouraged me to trust God and his faithfulness all the more. This same sort of thing is happening for the Christians in Rome. They saw Paul's courage in the face of, of his imprisonment and possible death. And it gave them courage to trust God all the more boldly. This is the kind of thing that can happen when we face suffering and trials with peace and joy. It can not only bring clarity for unbelievers, but it, it can encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to speak and live the gospel with greater confidence and trust in the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, sadly, however, we see that not all is well among the Christian community in Rome. In verses 15 and 17, Paul states that there are some who preach the gospel out of selfish ambition and rivalry, hoping to cause Paul grief in prison. This shows how insidious our idols can be. Certainly, ministry is a good thing, but when ministry or your moral record or acts of justice become ultimate things, it will wreak havoc in your life and communities. Love of God must come first, not love of ministry or service. When we are accepted and loved by God, not because of the things we do for him, but simply because he loves us and he made us to share in his love. There, there are so many examples of people whose lives and families have fallen apart because they made ministry their identity. Seattle is, is full of, of examples of how ministry can be a means to apply our worldly ambitions and build up our own egos. You know, Paul isn't clear as to why these, these people preached, um, preached and did their Christian work out of selfish envy, but perhaps they viewed Paul's imprisonment as evidence of God's judgment and justice on Paul and saw as it an opportunity to gain recognition and power for themselves. Paul, however, he's undeterred by rivals, and he rejoices because the advancing of the gospel is undeterred by rivals. One Bible commentator sums up Paul's attitude well when he writes, here is one for whom the gospel is bigger than his personal role in making it known. Paul, he doesn't care about his own reputation. What he cares about is that the gospel is being heard. In fact, if you jump back to verse 14, you'll see that he even calls these rival preachers brothers in Christ. Now, how can Paul have such a gracious and self-effacing perspective? I think we can get a glimpse of why if, if we look back at verse 16, where Paul says, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, I use the NIV translation here because I think it helps us bring out 
Paul's use of the word kami, translated put or appointed. Paul was appointed in, a, in the broad sense for the defense of the gospel, to speak the good news about Jesus in a, in a world opposed to him and his kingdom. But he didn't see his imprisonment as some sort of, as some sort of intrusion on that mission. No, no, he, he didn't see it as a lack on God's part to protect him. He understood his imprisonment as another appointment by God to continue his mission to advance the gospel. He believed he was put in prison to advance the gospel, to defend the gospel. Now, this isn't wishful thinking on Paul's part. It isn't ignoring the real pain that I'm sure he felt from these rival preachers who sought to hurt him. But what he's doing is he's looking at his situation from God's perspective. The Bible commentator Gordon Fee, he notes, it is not that Paul is too heavenly-minded to be in touch with reality or that he sees things through rose-tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. You know, whatever you are going through right now, know that as you rest in God's love and care, he can and will use it for his glory and for your growth, turning even the worst sort of bad into good. So let's have a big picture of what, what God might be doing in our lives and in our faith family through the good and the bad. And let's have a big picture of what God is doing here in our city. And it really saddens me when churches have such a small view of God's movement in and around them that, that the, all they see is what, what's going on in their faith community, in the, in the walls around their church. You know, living here in Seattle where the gospel faces a lot of opposition, we can't afford to be divided. We need other churches to encourage and preach the gospel alongside of us. The watching world needs to see churches working together and loving each other across racial and denominational lines. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what we look like, no matter how we may differ on the finer points of this or that theology. Like Paul, we can rejoice even when other churches speak ill of us if they aren't in fact preaching the gospel and making Christ known. So speaking of rejoicing, Paul turns from talking about the advancing of the gospel to speak about the joy he has even with a death sentence hanging over his head. For Paul to live is Christ, to die is gain. So in the second half of our passage, we see that he not, he's not only concerned with the advancing of the gospel, but also with magnifying Christ in all things. Now, verse 18 is a transitionary verse which revolves around Paul's rejoicing. His rejoicing in the present as the gospel is advanced, even in spite of difficulties, and his assurance of future rejoicing, even though the outcome of his trial is unknown. Now, the words rejoicing and joy show up over and over again in the book of Philippians, up to 15 times. So understanding joy is important for understanding the book. Now, joy in the Bible is much more than mere happiness, especially if that happiness is thought to be dependent and based on present circumstances. If that were the case, Paul would not be able to rejoice in his current state. The rejoicing Paul is speaking about is an expression of participation in the heavenly world. It's tasting the life to come in the here and now. Paul can rejoice even though his future is uncertain because for him, all of life is about magnifying Christ, which, which he plans to do by living for Christ no matter what may come. Paul writes, yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, it begs the question, what salvation Paul is referring to in verse 19? That word there can also be translated delivered. And later in verse 25, Paul seems pretty certain that he will be 
not found guilty and will be delivered and released from prison and able to return to the Philippians. It's clear, though, in verse 20 that Paul believes his salvation is assured whether he lives or dies. So whether he's released from prison or sentenced to death by the Roman emperor. So there does seem to be some ambiguity about what Paul foresees his future to hold. Many commentators on this passage believe Paul is here intentionally calling back to Job chapter 13. Now, if you're not familiar with this Old Testament book, it follows a righteous man named Job who, through his sufferings and loss, is wrongly accused by his closest friends that all the suffering that he's faced is due to his own sin. Job 13 contains one of the more poignant speeches from Job where he rejects his friend's accusations and pleads his case before God in whom he hopes and before whom he pleads his innocence. Job says um, in, in chapter 13, he says, even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance for no godless person can appear before him. So we see here Paul borrowing the language from Job and putting himself in the place of Job. The Roman officials and maybe even the Philippian church thought Paul was heading to a trial to be judged by the Roman emperor Nero, but Paul knew that his judge was God and God alone. This brought joy to Paul because he was in Christ. His life was all about living for Christ, living for the one who has taken our judgment upon himself on the cross. For Paul, the verdict was already in. In Jesus, he is found guiltless. Whether he lives or dies, Paul knows that God sees him not for his mistakes or his worries and fear, but as his beloved child. And not because of anything he has done, but because of his, the finished work of Jesus and his death and resurrection. So Paul, he brings his case before the Lord. You know, as towering a figure as Paul was, he doesn't depend on his own abilities or his own strength when it comes to maintaining faithfulness in prison or hope for the future. Actually, we see this in verse 19 where he says he is sure that his current predicament will lead to salvation through their prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul saw the prayers of the Philippians as vital to his continued goal of living for Christ. And he knew that he was in constant need of the presence of Jesus with him by the Spirit. The word used for help can also be translated supply, which I think gets closer to Paul's meaning. Paul doesn't see the Spirit as some cosmic assistant who helps him accomplish his own plans. Rather, he sees the Spirit as a companion on the journey of faith, one who brings the presence of Christ into the everyday life. It's about intimacy with God, not getting what he wants. Paul knows that it is only as the Spirit lives powerfully in and through him that Christ will be magnified in all things. And he will be able to live for Christ no matter what comes. But he also doesn't see his spiritual life as just himself and Jesus against the world. No, the importance Paul places on the prayers of his friends in Philippi reveals how Paul had no concept of living as a Christian without the church. As we, through Christ, begin the journey of faith, the, the Spirit unites us not only to Jesus, but also to one another. You have the privilege of experiencing God and his grace in the people that you're sitting next to right now. As we pray together, as we worship together, as we invite each other over for meals and for missional communities in our homes, God, he reaches out to each one of you through the flesh and blood relationships that we build in the church. As messy as it can be sometimes, we need the church if we hope to live for Christ no matter what may come. You know, Paul, he goes on to give his amazing and challenging purpose statement in verse 21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. This can be more literally translated, to live equals Christ, to die equals gain. Paul saw all life through this one lens, 
to magnify Christ in all things. Paul sought in all he did to show the beauty of Jesus' mercy, the truth of his love, the glory of his power. Can you say the same thing about your own life? Sadly, I think too often for us to live is Christ plus work, plus leisure, plus accumulating wealth, building our reputations, and so on and so on. For some of us, the plus factor has become the primary passion. For me to live is my work. To live is my relationships. To live is my social media clout. And there is where the idols lie. Unless Christ is our primary passion and love, there is no way that we can live for him no matter what may come. But we're not alone in this battle against lesser loves. Christ is with us by his spirit, and we have the church, which can support us on our journey of faith. The theologian Bonhoeffer, he once said that sin demands a man to be by himself. So let's not try to walk this journey of faith alone. If Paul couldn't do it, we certainly can't do it. You know, we have a responsibility for one another, an obligation not just to pray for this or that troubling situation, but for each other's spiritual growth. You know, this can only happen when we let ourselves be known. Relationships require vulnerability, which can be scary. I know because I struggle to let people into those broken places in my life. But relationships, they also require consistency, which means in our busy lives, we have to make the sacrifices required to be with each other. Not only on Sunday, but certainly on Sunday, even in the summer. I know it's crazy. But, but also outside of these walls. This is what it looks like to live for Christ. Paul could magnify Christ in all things because he knew that Jesus was right there with him by his spirit and that his fellow Christians across the empire were walking with him through his trials. But he, he could also magnify Christ in all things because of his hope and death. How else could Paul believe that death was gain if he didn't have hope for what was to come after death? Paul's first reference to hope is in verse 20, where he says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything. Now, the word that Paul uses for eager expectation is a single Greek word that he likely made up himself by smashing together three other Greek words. I'm sure he did this a lot of other times as well. But it's only used twice in the New Testament, once here and once in Romans chapter 8, where Paul, he writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation, there's that word again, for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation will itself be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. I know that's a lot, but Paul's words here, they give us some content to better understand the hope that he had even in death. He saw his own life as a participation in the suffering of this broken world, which because of our rebellion against God, by deciding right and wrong on our own terms, has been racked by death, disease, and natural disasters. The world is not as God intended it to be. But Paul knows that the world will not always be as it is now. When Christ returns to set all things right, we will rise to new life with glorified bodies and rule and reign alongside of him as God always intended, heaven and earth finally being united in this wondrous state, the whole creation will rejoice with us that all has been made well. This is the future that Paul keeps before him. This is why he has hope even in death. It's not some wishful thinking, but an expectant hope. Hence why Paul uses the word eager expectation. We ha have an idea in, in, our, in our world today that hope carries with it a sense of uncertainty. But hope in the Bible means something that is certain, but whose timing is uncertain. Paul didn't know when God would bring this new world about, but he did know 
that he was living for this new world in his present sufferings and that it would come. So he had joy. He had the joy of the new world. Even though he was still living in the present broken state of the fallen world in which we still live today. Paul could even be so bold as to say that if he had the choice between life and death, death would be far superior. Um, As he says, now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, but I do not know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now, we need to be careful here. Paul isn't saying that it would be better off if we all just died. No, that's, that's a very morbid thought. No, life should be protected. It's precious to God. What Paul is doing is he's simply stating the facts. Because his life is all about living for Christ, death would only bring him closer to his heart's desire, Jesus himself. The Bible has much more to say about the new world that God will bring when Jesus returns and set all things right than it does about what happens after we die. Um, But Paul is certain of one thing. He's certain that when he dies, he will be with Jesus. Because of this, he doesn't see death as something to fear, but more akin to a homecoming. He doesn't even use the word death in verse 22, but depart. This is what death is for the Christian, a departure. Paul may be applying a camping metaphor here. Um, Paul, if you remember, um, is a tent maker, So when he needed to make some cash on the side, he was building tents. Now, so perhaps he's applying the language of his trade to show that death for the Christian is the end of what is best a transitory thing, a camp life, in which we travel without a permanent resting place. This is to be exchanged for the, the eternal home God has in store for us. As Paul says in another letter, for we know that, that, that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So the camp life is exchanged for, at death for home life in Christ. Now this camping metaphor makes a lot of sense to me. <clears throat> now we just went camping as a church a few weekends ago. I've really found in my time here, um, I did grow up in the Pacific Northwest, but I found as I've lived in Seattle that a lot of people really like camping. Sadly, I don't enjoy camping. I know, I I wish I did. I wish I did, but something about it is just so exhausting. Um, I had a fun time on our camping trip, spending time with everybody, but I was physically relieved when we came back home. When, (laughs) I know, I'm being a little little extravagant, but when my wife and I drove into the city and came to the church to drop off some supplies, I was, I I literally sighed with relief. Oh, people going to restaurants. (laughs) Such, such a relief. Now, I know I'm being a bit dramatic, but I think this speaks to the image that Paul is putting before us. He could see death as gain because for Paul, it meant coming home. Even, even if you love camping, Certainly you would get tired of it eventually, right? The the relief that comes with coming home after a long, hard trip, sleeping in your own bed, tending to your own garden, the the feel of your own shower. This is the sort of relief that Paul has in mind, except multiplied to the nth degree. Death means coming home because we will finally know to the fullest the love that we were made for. Do you have hope in death? If you're a follower of Jesus, Paul's hope is your hope too. This kind of hope can aid us in overcoming any hardship, just like it aided Paul in facing possible death at the hands of the Romans. The professor Andrew DeBanco, um, he says in his book, The Real American Dream, that he, or he, he, he writes about in his book, The Real American Dream, he highlights the hopelessness that many feel. He states that this lack of hope comes from the fact that our culture has narrowed hope to the vanishing point of the self alone. By this, he means that because we are allowed to absolute freedom to to define and create ourselves, we become untethered from anything bigger or enduring than ourselves. 
So when life is good, we're happy and content. But when life is difficult, we fall into despair because from this perspective, this life is all we have. And life is all about what happens to us. Now, Paul lays before us a sure foundation than any, than any sort of self-fulfillment or success. He lived to magnify Christ in all things, which he could do whether things were bad or good. The hope we have in Christ is more sure and unchanging than any sort of idol, anything we might be tempted to worship. And God, he is more faithful and he will fulfill his promises. Not even death itself will stop him. So where does your hope lie? Is it in the passing things of this camp life? Or, or is it in the homecoming that awaits all those who are in Christ? Allow this sure hope to affect all areas of your life, whether it's your work or your relationships, what you do with your free time, even your emotions. This passage is brimming with emotion because Paul had the joy of the world to come. When we place our hope in our homecoming, we will have the same sort of joy no matter what is going on in, within us or all around us that Paul had as he faced possible death. And as to the topic of joy that Paul returns as he brings this section of the letter to a close, he writes, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So Paul, he was sure he was going to get out of prison because he believed God had more work for him to do, not because he believed God was just going to give him whatever he wanted. So, so what is that work that Paul has in store, that God has in store for Paul? It's the secret to magnifying Christ in all things, boasting in Christ alone. This is what Paul's aim for his own life, and it's his desire for the lives of others. An abounding boast in Christ alone is the outcome of progress and joy in the faith. Now, what does this boasting in Christ mean? Well, boast is an interesting word, one we don't actually use very often today. At its core, boasting is a declaration of what you rely on, what your life is built upon. Thus, for Paul, there are actually two alternative and mutually exclusive ways of boasting. Either boasting in the self, outward, outward experiences, or other people, or boasting in Christ alone. So boasting in Christ, for, for Paul, actually, false boasting lies at the heart of his understanding of sin. Whereas its opposite, boasting and glorying in the Lord is the ultimate evidence of a true conversion. Boasting in Christ, it's, it's when we look around at our lives and take stock of our lives and, and compare it to Jesus and his coming kingdom and see him as better than everything else. Magnifying Christ in all things, it necessitates boasting in him because it's only as we rest and, and build our lives upon him that our loves will be set right. And when that happens, when our loves are set right, our lives and words become a declaration to the world that Jesus is better than everything. So do you boast in Christ? Now, people know the things we love because we can't stop talking about them. Do people know that you love Jesus? Can, can you, like Paul, not stop talking about him because of all he has done by his grace to change everything in your life? Now, I know it can be hard in Seattle to speak about Jesus. Oftentimes, it might even end friendships or, or cause neighbors to distance themselves from you. I'm not suggesting that you're rude about your faith, but those who truly love Jesus can't help but, but boast in him. This was Paul's passion for himself and his hope for the Philippians. He was concerned with advancing the gospel no matter what obstacles may come and, and magnifying Christ in all things by living for Christ, by having a hope in death, and boasting in him and his amazing grace. You know, Timothy Keller wasn't perfect, neither was Paul, but they both had a laser focus in their lives to champion Jesus always. 
they are examples for us. Following Jesus, it means taking up Paul's passion as our own, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But Paul, he didn't reach this, this place of maturity and faith overnight. And he didn't get there by depending upon his own strength or ministry successes. Paul became the strong and joyful Christian who wrote the letter to the Philippians by having a transformative encounter with Jesus. I'm sure many of you know that before Paul became a Christian, he was, his, he was known as Saul. And he was a leader in persecuting the church. But on his way to throw Christians in prison for their faith, Jesus invaded his life, crying out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We see here that Jesus identified with the suffering of his people at the hands of Paul. But he didn't destroy this, this persecutor of his people. No, he called this rebel to know his love. This changed everything for Paul. It set his life on a whole new course. This is what the selfless love of Christ does in each one of our lives. It changes everything. When we look to the cross, we see that, that God doesn't just use our suffering to advance the gospel or magnify Christ in all things. No, he has entered into our suffering and taken it upon himself so that he might save us from sin, death, and the devil and bring us home to know the love that we were made for. Following Jesus means dying to the things of this life that vie for our attention and devotion. But Jesus, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he has not already done for us on our behalf. He humbled himself. He came to earth not to take power, but to give it away on the cross where he died for our rebellion and rose from the grave, defeating all that would come against us. So the work is finished. The verdict is in. There's nothing left to prove. We have no need to fear because we follow the suffering and conquering Savior. He's patient with us when we grow distracted and, or fearful. He's faithful when we are faithless. He gave all the way to save you, and he promises to bring you ultimately and finally home. It's when we rest in this wonderful truth that we can begin to see all things through the lens of Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So as we come to a close, I want to encourage all those followers of Jesus to take stock of your life. What are you constantly talking about? What do you love? If the watching world knows more about your favorite TV show or your love for hiking, perhaps your loves might be, be dis, a bit disordered if they don't know, first and foremost, your love about Jesus. The best way to address disordered loves is to return to the love for which you were made. Look to Jesus and experience anew his love in community, in worship, in prayer. If you are not a follower of Jesus, know that he longs for you to experience his love too. It, it just requires you to lay aside the empty promises and the false gods that vie for your attention. Only Jesus can give you an everlasting home.